The Forward Thinking CFO Podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemeritus, your financial modeling partner. We're trusted modeling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at emeritus.co.uk. Growing businesses need cash to support their growth, and it's the CFO's role to ensure that business has enough cash. Today, I'm talking to Alistair Brew of Business Growth Fund, which is a company operating in the UK and Ireland, and as its name suggests, is a provider of growth capital to businesses. So welcome to the Forward Thinking CFO podcast, Alistair Brew. Thank you very much for having me. Good. Now, um, you have, I think, been at uh, Business Growth Fund since it started roughly in 2011. And um, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background about uh, your career history up to that point and what what sort of brought you to that, to the decision to join there. Yeah, sure. So I was uh, originally a history graduate, but uh, I did a a maths A-level and uh, joined Pricewaterhouse, became PricewaterhouseCoopers of, uh, out of university. I joined the corporate recovery team. Uh, I was uh, attracted by the, the accountancy qualification, but also the commercial experience that, uh, that being in the, in the corporate recovery team would bring. I had a secondment of valuations for a while, and I thought at the end of that time with PwC, about six years, I sort of had a good mix of understanding around sort of short-term value drivers, the importance of cash, but also sort of longer term value generation, margin uh, enhancements and, and, and how, how to value businesses. So, but then I, and then I thought, um, but what I really want to do is get onto the, into the investment side. I thought uh, investment was a, a good role for an all-rounder. So I suppose I, I considered myself at the time and I wanted the challenge of putting my money where my mouth was. Uh, so I, I was looking for investment roles. This was um, about 2000, 2001. I joined Close Brothers initially, uh, investing money under the Enterprise Investment Scheme, moved to Octopus, which was a, um, a, another minority equity, I'll come, come back to that, so minority equity investor, investing mostly money under the Venture Capital Trust Scheme. These are both sort of government schemes to, to in, encourage money into smaller companies in, in, uh, to, to help the UK economy. So I was at Octopus for a uh, further, further six years, and then I joined um, BGF, in 2011, which I was a sort of new initiative, it was owned by the banks, and when we were coming out of the financial crisis at the time, so yeah, so I joined joined right at the beginning before the first deal, almost 11 years ago now. Interesting, actually, you mentioned the uh, crisis. There was that a driver for starting BGF, or was it more a kind of seen as an opportunity that that's good timing? Yes, it, when uh, when the financial crisis hit, there was, or after that, there was a dialogue between the government and the banks about how to get the uh, UK economy started again and uh, as part of that the, the banks agreed to set up a growth fund and they said they, they founded the founded the bgf with two and a half billion pounds between them there's no government money in the fund but it's fair to say that the sort of government inspired the, the setup and it actually there were quite a lot of parallels with the establishment of 3i at the end of the second world war which is obviously to rebuild the economy after after a war on, on, on that occasion. But other than, other than that, there were a lot of parallels, I think, between setting up a BGF after the financial crisis and 3i earlier on. Um, so I'm still getting used to, to having to say BGF was set up after the sort of crisis before last. Now, now, now we've got COVID. But uh, yes, there, there were a number of things the 
banks were doing to to try and um, set up the business. And I think it, it's probably fair to say it did need the crisis to, to bring it together. But uh, I'm very pleased that did happen. And um, yeah, the BGF was launched as a result. Yeah, and BGF is owned by five banks, as you say, and describes itself as a different kind of investor. So what characteristics do you share with regular banking and, and maybe with other investors? Or, or are you offering something altogether different? I think that original context uh, for the setup is, is, is really important and still resonates today. I mean, I think BGF was, was set up with a mission. And I think you know, we've, we're quite fortunate in that respect. I think a lot of businesses are uh, looking for missions these days. But I, I would argue ours was, was on the table from the very go. And, and it's very authentic, you know, it's authentic as a result. But you know, rebuilding the economy by, by growing small companies, helping them get to the next level, um, doing that in a commercial way, but ways that would, would clearly grow jobs at the same time, um, doing that locally across the whole of the UK. It wasn't just about um, South East, rather, where there's quite, quite a bit of money already. So, yeah, it, it, it did feel like um, a different approach. There was a lot of talk about an equity gap at the time, which had actually been, there'd been a talk of an equity gap for, for decades, going back to the 1930s, this idea that small companies need risk capital to grow. They, um, particularly after the financial crisis, couldn't get that from a, from a bank. And arguably, we would say it was inappropriate to get debt from a bank if you're trying to sort of grow a business on a sustainable basis. Equity is a better solution in our, in our view. So... Yeah, it had a real sort of purpose from, from the word go. And there's lots of aspects of the design of BGF, I think, that have delivered uh, on that promise. I wouldn't say that the product, if you like, was totally unique at the time. You know, as I mentioned before, that I'd, I'd come from an octopus which had VCT money, venture capital trust money. There we were making investments, equity investments into small companies across lots of different sectors, and we were doing that by taking minority equity stakes, so not controlling the businesses, but sort of working alongside management to help them grow their businesses. So as I say, that did exist before BGF came along, but in terms of the, 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 the sort of the mission and the scale and the focus, um, the, the, uh, I think the BGF is pretty unique in the marketplace. So um, to have two and a half billion pounds made, made a huge difference. And just to put that in context, we're... It's, it's, it's stretched a, a little bit in terms of smaller and larger, but, but originally we were talking about two to ten million pounds per company. Uh, so that's an awful lot of companies that we could support. So moving, uh, I mean, just talking a little bit more about our investment approach. So as I say, it's minority only, so which is key. So it's about partnering with teams. It's a balance sheet vehicle. By that I mean the money is invested from the balance sheet. And in, if an investment is, is sold in the future, the, the cash comes back onto the balance sheet and is then invested into, into another business later. The funds aren't returned to the shareholders. Uh, it's, it's committed capital, evergreen capital is another word for it. And that's different to the traditional private equity model, which raises funds in cycles. They'll, they'll invest a fund, uh, so raise a fund, invest it, get the money back, return the entire fund to the investors and then raise another one in a different vehicle. So, And that can create a dynamic where, where the, the investor wants to sell the business at a particular time to suit their fundraising cycle. And you know, I think we're very fortunate and we don't have that pressure because it's because of the balance sheet approach. And so we can remain invested for the long term. And if when we think about sort of what barriers people see when they're thinking about raising equity to, to help uh, grow a business, you know, concerns around what the agenda of the investor might have 
in terms of the time horizon they want to be invested in, so it was a, was a key sort of potential hurdle. So it's, I think it was it was very helpful for us to be able to say from the outset that, that that's just not an issue with us, and uh, and therefore people could see us more as a partner rather than as an owner. We also tended to we we didn't we didn't use we, you know we still don't use much bank debt in our deals initially at least. So it's not that traditional private model of control using bank debt to buy the business. I mean, I could use up all the, the time talking about this, but, you know, the, there's a private equity does have a sort of, did, or did, certainly didn't have that sort of public perception. And I think we were able to say we're quite different to that. So, yeah, we've spent the last um, 11 years improving that out. Yeah, and, and you, you mentioned partnership there. And, and I suppose when um, business owners are looking for investment, is usually the choices of giving up some of their equity or taking on bank debt, as you say, and particularly for smaller businesses, that often means personal guarantees to secure the loans. Whereas you're talking about a partnership, and that sort of suggests that it's a slightly different relationship, and that maybe you're offering something beyond just the cash to help the financing. Is, is that right? Yes, that's right. I think it's fair to say that you know, selling an equity stake in, in a business is a, is a massive decision for an owner, particularly an owner manager. And you could argue that it is the most expensive form of finance in that sense. And therefore, understanding what that extra capital will do for your business is key. And what value the investor can bring is, is also a very important consideration for us. Well, in fact, you, you, hear, that, you hear that from a lot of investors that, that, that they add value. I personally think we have a, the potential to deliver that uh, you know, at least as uh, much, if not more, than, than, than anyone else, uh, just because of the scale we are. So we we, have, we we enjoy a lot of economies of scale benefits um, in terms of network, and we have resources at BGF that we can sort of deploy in, into the portfolio. And we have what we call the talent network, which are a collection of individuals that work alongside the portfolio to, to add value across lots of different areas. So, I mean, the, the model also incl- includes. BGF investor and join, joining the board as a non-executive director, but that's only part of it. That person is, becomes a sort of conduit through to the rest of the, the, the BGF network. You know, giving examples, we've helped businesses with systems implementation, HR issues, all, all sorts of matters that frequently pop up as businesses scale. Because businesses have to actually change shape as they grow off, and turns you know, and it raises lots of questions. We're we're often getting involved at that inflection point where businesses do need to move beyond having an interesting product and, and, a, and a relatively small team to systemizing it, professionalizing the, the, the operations of the business such that the business becomes less reliant on key individuals and can scale as a more sort of substantial platform there. Uh, and I firmly believe businesses, it's very difficult for businesses to stand still. I think they have to sort of grow going forward in an appropriate fashion, not not you know, in a sustainable way. We'll, I'm sure we'll come back to that. But growth, I think, is important to to avoid being overtaken or, or sort of stagnating if there isn't that ambition. So um, two other sort of points connected to support. I think providing follow-on funding is a, is a key part of it. I mean, we, uh, if as businesses grow, either, well, hopefully for positive reasons, there's further opportunities that where, where, where extra capital can be deployed and we've, we're well-placed to sort of you know, follow our money. Also, during um, moments of crisis, having a shareholder around the table with deep pockets is quite helpful if there are any bumps in the road. So, we, you know, that, that's a possi- possibility if it's needed. But overall, you're, you're, uh, the way we like to think of it is you're joining a, a family of businesses, a portfolio. We, we, we've been, um, I, didn't, I haven't said this earlier, actually, but we've now got a sort of portfolio of 
about 250 private companies, 50 to 60 companies on, on AIM, so over 300 in total. And that is an amazing network for each of those portfolio companies that all the, all the CEOs and chairs get together at least once a year in sectors that probably speak to each other more often than that. And we've, ju- we've just launched a, a social media app called uh, Portfolio Exchange, which is literally a way of, for them all to sort of directly communicate with each other as well. So there's a huge amount of emphasis goes into making it a, a sort of valuable a, a valuable proposition, having BGF as a, as a shareholder and, and a partner in, in your business. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because don't come across that many people who are offering a sort of minority stake. And if you're a business owner looking to, to grow, then I suppose the rationale is, you know, if I give away whatever, say, 20% then you know my remaining 80% if I can double treble whatever quadruple that in size is is worth a lot more than 100% of what I've got now and and so you know you're you're helping them on that journey with not so much with control but you know as a sort of a side-by-side partnership arrangement so that's absolutely right and uh, I mean when we're when I'm talking to people about this you know I encourage people to sort of write down a list of sort of things that they would do if they had uh, more capital than about sort of prioritizing them in terms of bang for buck. It's about working out what's achievable in, in, a, in a realistic time frame. you know, let's say it's let's say eight or 18 months or so. That should raise, uh, you know, throw out uh, uh, an amount uh, of capital that it could be appropriate to raise. And then you've really got, yeah, the team has to work out, well, if, if we raise this money and invest it in this in this fashion, what will that do to the profitability of our business how will that uh, enhance the valuation and is it worth my while selling x percent of the equity to get to that future place and yes in pound note terms clearly the team the owner manager should be much better off doing that deal rather than not doing that deal you know you see if if, and if that's not the case don't don't do the deal it's about sort of sharing the proceeds of growth is another way of thinking about it yeah so along the journey once people have made contact with you there'll be a process you go through where there's an investment committee and and presumably some other due diligence and so on along the way. Most of us outside banking and investment, this is all a bit of a black art. We don't really know what goes on in those investment committees. Can give us an idea, a flavour of what gets discussed there and what companies can do to help themselves set up for success with that? Sure. Probably fair to say every every firm will have a slightly different process, but but there'll be a lot of similarities as well. I mean, just for the avoidance of doubt, the management team itself isn't doesn't meet the committee. That does happen in some early stage funds, but not many. So it's it's the job of the deal team that's sitting in front of the committee to make the case for for that investment, and they need to convey the vision, the same vision that the sort of the management team has, but but also be all over the detail in terms of explaining why the execution of that particular investment plan will, will be successful. And it, you know, that's about articulating why a business is a good business, but also why it's a good deal for BGF. You can have a good business and a bad deal, or, or and sometimes vice versa, although probably not to be encouraged. In essence, I think, you know, what does the team have to convey? They have to convey, you know, what, the essence of the business model, you know, why will this business, why does it have a sustainable competitive advantage and, you know, and explaining that in simple terms. One of the key points is that the committee hasn't met the team. And so, so it's down to the deal team to convey all of that, as I was, as I was saying. And I suppose from a committee member point of view, 
they're trying to sort of imagine all the questions they would ask if the management team were in front of them and, and they would like they want like to think that the deal team's asking the same questions. So there's definitely you know, they they have to have confidence in the team as well as in the opportunity and I mean that, that that's probably so it's a process that everyone has to go through and but it, it, it's a very personal, it's the way I see it, for a deal team to spend time with the management team working up a proposal which can take you know, two, two or three months and they, they have to sort of get up a, a, a steep learning curve as quickly as possible and then and then convey all the, uh, everything I was talking about to people that haven't met the business and are just coming across it. So communication is an important part of it in terms of how the papers are written and, and how they articulate themselves in, in the meeting itself. So what kind of due diligence uh, does BGF do and how onerous is that for a business you're considering investing in? So the first thing to say is that, I mean, due diligence is important. Um, it's our shareholders' money and uh, checking what's said to us is an important part of it. Conscious, however, that uh, we, we do want to keep the due diligence you know, commensurate with the size of the business and the, and the size of the investment we're doing, you know, money spent on due diligence isn't money invested into the business so it's important to keep to keep a, a lid on those costs we work hard with our network to find cost effective due diligence so you know for example we'll often use an individual an experienced finance director who's done a lot of assessing of businesses in the past we'll, we'll often use an individual like that rather than a firm if if it, in a situation with smaller investment and that's more cost effective and it gives us the information we need so we are sensitive to costs and we'll make sure that we keep those to a, to a minimum. This point is sometimes not emphasised enough, I think. I think the silver lining with the due diligence process is that it's a chance to get to know your business even better. You need to have an outside consultant come in and uh, ask lots of questions. It's surprising how many times I've heard people say, actually, they, that was an enjoyable experience and they've learned something. It could be about the market or about operations or, or, or whatever. So it's... Yes, it has to happen, but make sure the costs don't run away and try and sort of see it as a positive in terms of learning more about the business. Yeah, we have a similar experience sometimes when we're scoping a model, actually, that uh, companies are surprised how useful they find it as well, just because we're asking a whole bunch of questions. So, yeah, interesting. So uh, the deal team is actually quite invested in the potential investment uh, by the time they get there. So BGF's made... As you say, there's currently something close to 300 investments, plus all the ones that you've already exited from. Over all those investments over the last decade or so, what are the key lessons you've learned from the companies, your investments, which are the, were the most successful in growing their businesses? And is there anything there that you think is worth passing on to uh, people who are looking at that as an option? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good question. Quite a big question, actually. <laughs> we have quite a big question. And with a portfolio that size, they're, they're, they're funny enough, you'll be surprised to hear, there's definitely not one answer to it. But you probably hear people talking about uh, getting the team right. That, that would be a, be a common a common factor. And that, you know, for the avoidance doubt, mean when we come across businesses, often the management team may be incomplete. You've got to you know, have... One, two, three p- people in around the table, but more more are required to go through that scaling process that I talked about earlier. So, and, and actually, that's one of the things we can really help with through the through the talent network that I was mentioning earlier. So, getting the team right. There's, the second thing is probably well, it's, it, it, it's often about execution, and that requires focus. I think a lot of businesses, smaller businesses, have quite a number of different things, you know, strategies they can pursue, and and getting that uh, making the right choices, doing things in the right sequence. Is key, and I mean, I suppose it's 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 
fairly common that we would be looking for a business that has an exciting product or service, as I was talking about competitive advantage earlier, but you're then trying to sort of ex- you know, to execute and scale the business. A lot more needs to be built around that, and that will be you know, in terms of people and systems. So the teams that can hold on to that vision, know where they're going, but also get the, the day-to-day understanding the levers to pull to move the business forward and getting the, the people side right, that's absolutely key. So we also say it's, it's rarely a straight line. Businesses take two steps forward, one step back. So yeah, keep plugging away and you know, keep your eyes open in terms of it will be going down the right route and, and having a good open relationship with uh, the investor is absolutely key because it is a partnership. And uh, yeah, so I think that's probably, I mean, it's, those are sort of general answers, but I, I think it, I think that you, you would see most of those things in place in our successful investments. Well, so what I haven't talked about is sector, but you hope that's a sort of given that the business in the, is in the right part of the sector when you go in but it's but it's the execution that makes the real difference yeah okay great when it comes to the time to exit most entrepreneurs and investors are ultimately looking for that i suppose when they're looking at growing a company how's that decision made uh, you alluded earlier to the fact that you're less driving the timetable is it that uh, that's within the gift of the, the business owner or you know is it a collaborative decision yeah i mean for us absolutely it has to be a joint decision I mean, it's worth me touching on typical time horizons. I mean, private equity often plans on a sort of three to five year time horizon. That, that's partly back to the fundraising cycle point I was making earlier on. But I mean, we, we have some investments in our portfolio from 2012 still, just to sort of illustrate that we, we can be in there for long term. But at some point, it's pretty fair to say that a financial investor will be looking for a financial return. And there will come a point where all, all the stakeholders around the around the table think it's the right time to exit the business. So it is a joint decision. It's often driven by personal circumstances of the management team, but you're also trying to sort of work out, well, have we got the business into the best possible position to get good value for it? And But is there enough left on the table for the next person who's going to take the business on? Because everyone would, you know, wants to buy a business for, for its future growth potential. So it's... Fair to say we would usually uh, look to appoint a corporate finance advisor to help us with an exit process. And that's, again, a joint decision with the management team. And it, it's crucial to sort of start early in planning for that because it, it can affect, you know, no, uh, don't, we wouldn't obsess about this from day one, far from it. But knowing what you're building towards affects the sort of decisions along the way. So, yeah, if there is a, an exit potential in, in sort of, year or two's time then it's not ridiculous to start early in terms of the planning and speaking to people about it yeah now i know we've we've spoken in the past about some of the investments you made and you know those were quite often um, companies that were looking to for global uh, not global sorry for, for some regional expansion that is you know they've got a formula and they're rolling it out is that a typical example of the the sort of investment you make and, and are there others that are also kind of a not, not perhaps a formula, but those which lend themselves particularly to the sort of investment that you can make. No, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. I mean, a rollout of a concept from a small number of sites to, to more sites is, is definitely a common theme. We'll also get involved if there's an acquisition finance required. It could be product development. It could be just overhead build to help scale. It's probably worth touching on what people call cash out. So... I mean, we're a growth capital business, so what we look, you know, we're about growing the business first and foremost. But and that's normally about investing money into the business uh, for, for you know, new equity purchase. 
having said that, as you know, if it's sort of facilitates growth, it's part of a growth capital deal. We can fund cash out, so that means you know, buying shares, shares off off existing owners, and that that to de-risk them. And you know, we're conscious that the say goes, uh, you, know, you don't want sort of life-changing amounts of money, such that the attitudes towards the business changed. But it's very much recognised that management teams de-risking along the way is a you know, legitimate thing to seek to do. So yeah, we can provide cash out. We still only ever sell a minority. We're only ever buying a minority stake still. So, the, but as part of a, a sort of longer term succession plan, that's quite a common thing for a, a founder to think about. You know, sort of selling down part of their ownership over a series of deals. So, you know, by selling a minority stake to us, growing the business, bringing perhaps new new people in, maybe a new, you know, ultimately a management team that can take over the business later, and and actually, you know, exiting alongside us for the second bite of the cherry in the future. So. That sort of succession planning type deal is, is also common, particularly when people start thinking about capital gains tax rates and, and all those sorts of uh, factors out there. So, and I think you know, COVID's demonstrated more, more than ever that you know, there is the future, <laughs> the future is uncertain. So, there's plenty for people to think about there. But again, doing that only with the right partner is, is, is crucial. Yeah, actually, you mentioned COVID, and you know, you probably have a whole conversation about COVID. But uh, is that something that's been a major feature concern, or uh, is it more or less been business as usual for you? Definitely not business as usual. But having said that, I think we've been relatively fortunate. There were some businesses hit quite hard, and I, you, know, you feel sorry for the teams because it is, it is desperately. Bad luck. I mean, I was, investors always talk about sensitivities when you're planning ahead, and you know, it could be you know, 10, 20, 25, 30% top line hit, and there's a sensible discussion about that just in terms of scenario planning. And then, uh, you, know, you know, try 100%. I mean, that's uh, it's, that, that, it's pretty pretty tough on, on, on some businesses. That, um, but having, I would like to think those businesses, having a partner alongside them, even then they've they've appreciated that, and we've been able to work together. I think the government schemes were were very good in the end in terms of furlough and the the, the, the bank loans. So we we were fortunate with even with the businesses that were hit quite quite hard. Nearly all of them came through. And the flip side is probably a higher proportion of our portfolio actually benefited enormously from COVID. I mean that was one of the strange things about it it hit different sectors in very different ways and um you know anything to do with sort of home improvements or e-commerce uh, a lot of uh, healthcare tech it, it was clearly a sort of uh, a catalyst for change and so some of the and i think it's probably as i say fair to say that more of our portfolio actually got a got a got a bounce than suffered so yes it, it was a it was a very strange time but in, in those early days when the fear of un, the unknown was a lot of time spent with each of the portfolio companies to sort of get get the get the planning right. Yeah, I can imagine it must have been a, a, a very busy period for everybody. Yes. So um, let's turn to just uh, if if a uh, if a company thinks that you might be a suitable investor for them, what sort of things should they be doing to to try to get themselves lined up for that, and uh, how would they go about making contact with you? Yeah, sure. So we're very happy to speak to people, however early it is in their thinking about this. And if we can 
and inform people in the debate about what to do next, then, then great. We, we don't need things wrapped up in a tidy bow. So we're, we're happy to have conversations at any point. We've got 16 offices across the UK. I mentioned at the beginning, being local, very important. Those offices have an investment team on the website, an office head. So uh, if you're local to one of those offices, then get in touch. I'm, I'm very happy to point people in the right direction as well. I mean, BGF's got... 180 employees overall, but about 110 in the investment team or something. So, you know, we're, you know, we're a large organisation, but run locally. So um, getting to know the local team is, is probably the key. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to make any introductions as people wish. That's great. Well, we'll put uh, a, a way to contact you on the show notes for this, uh, for this episode. So if people want to get in touch, then they'll be able to do that. Just to wrap things up now, the question we ask everybody as a guest on the podcast at the end is about... What do you think are the most important things that uh, CFOs should be focusing on over the next few months, a sort of six to 12 months time frame, and then perhaps a little bit longer, so more like three to five years? Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. I, I suppose a, a, a couple. The, I mean, in the short term, I think you know, inflation is a core concern for everyone, and that will, that, I think, and particularly for finance teams, sort of planning ahead for that. Is crucial that because it affects everything from wages to raw material costs. It's going to hit the impact on the business significantly. So hopefully teams will be looking for uh, to use that as a sort of opportunity to sort of reassess how things are done. Are there any ways of saving money? Re- really you know, doubling down on all those efforts, trying to understand what their own pricing power is. Can, you know, can is it appropriate for for the business to be raising prices? And um, yeah, I suppose paying paying people well. It, it, I suppose it's having proper good relationships with, with suppliers and explaining what to do to, just to improve the resilience in, in the business. It sort of links on to the second point I was going to make, actually, which is, I haven't actually mentioned it yet, which is ESG. ESG is, uh, it stands for Environmental Social Governance. It's a massive part of investing now. You know, investors have always been looking to invest for a commercial return and perhaps sort of looked at investments primarily through a financial lens. In reality, I think a good investor has always been looking long term and thinking about risks and environment and uh, you know, taking into account the risks that come from environmental change, having um, good social and, and governance running in, in, in the business, you know, looking after the workforce. Those have always been important uh, aspects of, of investing and running a business in my mind, but there's a greater focus on ESG than ever before. And so investors will be looking to understand that a management team not only can do all those other things I was talking about earlier on, but also has a handle on what ESG risks there are in the business because I mean, ESG will definitely go to value. You know, a business with good ESG compliance will be worth more than one uh, without it. So, yeah, that would probably be my parting shot. So it's uh, uh, having a good view of the vision of the business, good understanding of the execution and the, the drivers, but also you know, ESG. And then, and then it's about building relationships with investors and and if, if it was a sort of final word of advice, it'd be it's all about sort of expectation management. So if at all possible, under promise, over deliver. It's a good place perhaps to uh, finish up on. Yeah, like a sound advice for many things, that is, I think. Well, Alistair, thanks very much for appearing as a, a guest on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for sharing your insights. And I found it enlightening to, to hear a bit about uh, what goes on behind the scenes there and, and you know, what kind of investment or companies that you may invest in, um, how that works. So uh, thanks for that. I'm sure our listeners will find it very interesting as well. And uh, thanks once again for appearing on the podcast. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me.